Good morning. Welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Uh, really pleased to have you with us, and uh, thanks for uh, taking time to come and gather together and to worship the Lord. And uh, I'm sure there are still some who are watching online, so let me just say a, a warm welcome to you as well, and we pray that you'll be blessed as we hear God's Word. If you're visiting with us, let me introduce myself. My name is Duncan. I have the privilege of serving as pastor here, and if you have any questions at all about what we do here as a church or anything that happens in this service, then please do come and speak to me, or if we've never met before, come and speak to me. I'd love to meet you. We have tea and coffee served after this service in the hall next door, so please do stay for that if you can. It would be lovely to get to know you. One of the things we like to emphasize, particularly if you have the job that I have just now of uh, welcoming people to church, is that uh, you are to give the warmest and most pleasant welcome you can. Uh, you can do the evaluation form later about how I've done. But you might not realize it, but actually I am not the one who welcomes you here. It's not me. The Lord Himself is here. The Lord Himself is saying, welcome come on in. Find everything you could ever need in me. I'm going to read some verses from God's Word from Isaiah chapter 55. It's a chapter of the Bible that opens up with God saying, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This is what God says from verse 6, seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it birth, bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose." and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This morning, we are gathering here to meet with this God, who is higher than us in every thought, and we do so with the assurance that this God may be found. But of course, as he says in those words, we meet with the Lord as we humble ourselves, as we turn away from sin, as we return to the Lord. And so, as we sing this morning, let your heart speak to God in just these kind of ways. Well, please do take a seat, and let's come before God in prayer and ask Him to help us in this time together. Let's pray. Loving God, our Heavenly Father, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than ours. And how could that not be the case? You are the everlasting God 
who created all things. You are pure and perfect in all of your ways. You do not just do good things or do loving things or do wise things, but you, O oh God, are good. You are love. You are wisdom. And all we can dare to do before one who is so utterly supreme is to bow down and worship and say, you're our God. It amazes us, Lord, that you would speak to us. But that's what you've done by your word. And you have told us to come to you and to know you. Oh, Lord, we are sinful. We do wrong things all the time. More than that, we have wrong always living in our hearts. But we come here to celebrate this morning that we come to you through Jesus Christ, who suffered and died on the cross so that we could be forgiven our sins, so that we could draw near to you and even be part of your family. Lord, we thank you. And we thank you for these words that we have read and sung they speak of your amazing grace towards us and that even today you are at work among us. You have promised that where your word goes forth that it shall accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. So we pray that we would know that in a special way this morning. Whether we be in junior church, whether we be staying in this service, we pray that your word as it is taught, would bring conviction, bring comfort, bring salvation, bring hope that, Lord, you would meet every one of us and speak to us as your people today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Good morning. Um, every promise of his word, I'll be reading this with uh, diligence preparation and prayer, considering I just slightly forgot it was me doing the reading this morning. So here goes. So we're on Acts 1, 12 to 24. Matthias chosen to replace Judas. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. 
and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Basabbas, who was also called Justus and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Well, it is true, preparation is a hard discipline. I was reflecting on some occasions where uh, preparation has let me down. I can remember once applying for a job in Belfast. This was in the days when I was a medical researcher, and I was invited to go for an interview. Now, to be honest with you, the, the area of research, the techniques involved, I had almost no prior experience of. And so if I was going to have any chance of getting this job, I would need to prepare. Well, you know, life is busy. And I thought, well, I'll have time to do it on the boat. But by the time I had driven down there, I was so tired I ended up sleeping. And then I thought, well, I could, I could uh, sit up late and I could do some preparation the night before. But of course, I was staying with a friend who I hadn't seen for years. So I sat up late chatting to him and I went into this interview with almost zero preparation. And it was mildly humiliating. And uh, as you can see, I'm not in Belfast. Uh, think about, though, when it comes to home decoration. And you know, you read the instructions on the side of the tin of paint and they always say, prepare the surface before applying, don't they? Remove loose debris. Clean the surface, make sure there's no greasy residue. Fill any holes, sand it down. And we know the more time we take over that, the better the finish will be. Well, if you're anything like me, once you've got the paint in your hand and the brush in the other, you just want to slap it on, don't you? And uh, well, next time you're around at mine, you'll see the results. And we could be tempted to feel the same way about the book of Acts. We started into this most exciting book last week. And where we, where we left off last week, Jesus had given instructions to his disciples that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in fact, to the ends of the earth. And Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit who would give them power to be those witnesses to the ends of the earth. And now, as the reader... Well, you want them to get on with it. You expect the next thing you're going to read about, there's going to be fireworks. It's going to be dramatic. But instead, Luke, who writes this book, 
He takes his time. And he takes us to an upper room where it seems 120, the first 120 followers of Jesus are gathered. And they're going to take time to appoint a new apostle. And Luke loves details. He tells us the names of everyone who made it onto the shortlist. He tells us who got appointed. Even though neither of these names are going to appear anywhere else in all of Scripture. And so you think, Look, why are you wasting time with this? Well, the answer is because preparation is important. It's fundamental to the success of the project. And even in these 10 days between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his sending of the Holy Spirit, even though it is this, this probably the most quiet part of the whole book, It is actually about God's people being prepared for God's mission. So let's look at these verses. How are God's people being prepared here? First of all, I want you to see that they are being prepared by their unity in prayer. Prepared by their unity in prayer. Verse 12, the disciples do exactly what Jesus told them to. He said, go back into Jerusalem and wait. And it says there they traveled a Sabbath day's journey, which is about three quarters of a mile, which is the distance from, um, uh, from where they were uh, on Mount of, of Olives back into Jerusalem. And Luke, he names these 11 apostles, which is actually interesting to me, and we're going to say a bit more about this later. If you read Luke's gospel, which Luke wrote as well, he actually has already written a list of the names of the apostles. You'd find it in chapter 6. So why does he go to all the trouble of doing it again? Well, it underlines for us some of Luke's priorities. He wants to convince us of the details. He wants, us to, con- he wants to convince us of the verifiability of what he's talking about. He doesn't get vague, he's specific. So if you want to check it out, here's the names, here's the places. So rather than just saying, well, the apostles, he's transparent. He shows us, in fact, that there's now only 11 apostles, whereas before there were 12, and he's going to tell us, remind us why that is. He wants to give the names so that you can be confident about who he's talking about. Specific guys at specific time with a specific message to share of something that they all saw and they all heard, and that'll become clear as we go through this passage. The same 11 men whom Jesus called to the ministry of being apostles. And that word apostle really does just mean someone who is sent with a message. At heart, that's what these guys were. But as we see them here, they're waiting. They're being prepared for that task of sending a message. And specifically, they're described as spending this time in prayer. Uh, All these, verse 14, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What were they praying for? I mean, Jesus had told them what was going to happen. He said that the Holy Spirit was going to come. He was going to give them power. They were going to go and be his witnesses everywhere. And he says, go to Jerusalem and wait. That's where it's all going to start. But in their waiting, 
They're speaking to God. Presumably asking God to do what He's promised to do. Seems strange at first, doesn't it? But this is actually what prayer is. Read through the prayers of the Bible. This is the clear pattern you'll see, is that God's people pray and they ask God to do the thing that He's promised to do. So they already know what's going to happen, and yet they pray and they ask God to do it. So the mission of the church, even though its direction and its success have been promised by Jesus Christ, it is only as God is at work in us that that success comes to pass. God's people always remain entirely dependent upon God. So even when He gives those promises, it's only as they're dependent upon Him. It's still His work. And that is expressed by praying. Praying is seeking the Lord. It's coming humbly before Him. It is asking Him to glorify His name through us. It is to say, Lord, I can't do anything on my own. I need to, I need to come and ask You to do it. That's the essence of prayer. It's much more than just a, a shopping list of, well, this would be nice, this would be nice, this would be nice. It's a personal thing. One is invested in prayer, coming before God, kneeling before God, saying, Lord, I, I have no resources of my own. So if you are going to do this thing, it's going to have to be you that does it. And Luke makes a point of showing us that prayer here was an expression, a reflection of their unity, their oneness. So, the ESV, which I'm reading, says they were, uh, um, with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Some other translations simply say they were united in prayer. And this is a flavor of what the church is. Followers of Jesus united together united around the mission that He gives them. Oftentimes, the Christian church does not have a reputation for unity. And one thing you can be sure of, where disunity exists in a church family, it means that somewhere the focus has shifted from what it actually means to be the people of God. The focus has shifted from what it is that makes us one, that makes us belong to Jesus and to one another. And very often you find that where there is disunity, those who find themselves most disunited are ones that rarely are praying together in this, well, united way. I think there is a lesson here. I don't want to be guilty of hijacking these verses, but um, as I've said from here before, this phase of life that we are in as a church now is a dangerous one. This is life post-lockdown. And in many areas, decision-making has been placed back into the hands of the people. And in the main, who's going to say that's a bad thing? The problem is we all have to make a judgment call, don't we, about what we think is safe and right, what is the right thing to do. 
And understandably, we will all have our own opinions. And so we must realize that even how we organize things as a church, whatever decisions we make, probably most will disagree with them at some level because we all have our opinions. But friends, being aware of that danger, being aware of that impossible situation means that we must be all the more determined not to neglect our unity as God's people, to remember that the thing that holds us together are not coronavirus guidelines. Really, they're not. The thing that unites us together is our belonging to Jesus. It is the shared mission that we have together. If we allow those other sorts of things to divide us, then we're undermining our mission to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. So let me be even more specific, if I may. Some will be very cautious about returning to social interaction in homes again. Some will choose not to be vaccinated. Some will test twice a week, and others will not do it at all. Some will want to keep wearing a face covering even when they don't have to. But believe me, folks, none of these things define the people of God. Not one of them. However strong your views may be on any of them, we must never allow those sorts of things to disturb the unity of the church. After all, what we're going to see throughout this book of Acts is that of all the places on the earth, it's the church which sees unity between different races, different ethnicities, different cultures, different genders. They can all come together and be one. Why? Because they all belong to the same Savior. And so they all share the same mission in life. They belong to Him, so they belong to one another. And I don't think that prayer here is just an expression of their unity. I actually think prayer is one of the ways that the church protects their unity. So here is a prescription for you. If you're suffering some sort of resentment towards another Christian, first of all, try praying for them. Second of all, try praying with them. You'll be amazed at how prayer maintains the unity of God's people. And here in Acts 1, they're praying for the mission that is about to start. The mission of making Jesus known can only be done in dependence upon God. So the church was prepared by their unity in prayer. We see here also that they were prepared by submission to the Word of God by submission to the Word of God. And, and actually, that's, what, that's the first thing you see in our passage in verse 12. They were obedient to the instructions that Jesus had given them. They returned to Jerusalem to wait. But while they were waiting, Peter stands up and he tells them that there is something he is convinced that they must do. They need to replace Judas Iscariot, the apostle who had betrayed Jesus and then taken his own life. In Peter's mind, he has become convinced that the number of apostles needs to be restored to 12. And you see that Peter, at every step of this, is being led by the Scriptures. 
led by the Scriptures, the Jewish Bible, what we would call the Old Testament. And you see that as soon as he starts to speak in verse 16, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Peter is going to take us to the Psalms, but notice that he sees the Scriptures as the Holy Spirit speaking through the human author. This isn't one of the the typical texts that we would go to when describing the authority of the Bible. There are others that are perhaps say a bit more about it, but this is very helpful. This is the message here. When you read the Scriptures, you're not just reading words on a page. You're not just reading the the religious reflections of some guy. You are reading the words of the Holy Spirit who spoke through the one who wrote it down. There is this divine and human quality to the Word of God, where God, the Holy Spirit, speaks through the writing of the human author. Yes, the Spirit spoke. But you read elsewhere, actually, in the New Testament, where the Old Testament is being quoted, they don't just say the Spirit spoke. Sometimes they say, the Spirit says. In other words, yes, the Spirit spoke. His words were put onto the page. But as you read them, the Spirit still speaks. The Spirit's words, always living, always active. Well, what's being said here? Well, as he says, it relates to Judas, Judas Iscariot. And Luke gives us this little aside. You see that in verses 18 and 19? They're in most translations anyway. They're in brackets just as this little explanation that we're being given to fill in the details, that Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. If you were to read Matthew's gospel, it tells us that in his despair at doing this, he ran out and hanged himself. Luke doesn't focus on that. Instead, he tells us about the final state of his body, and we don't know exactly what happened here, but um, I mean, it's exciting reading, I suppose. He fell headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. There's something of a shamefulness to this death of Judas, isn't there? His body bursts open and he stains this field that was bought with the proceeds of his betrayal. You see, Judas clearly never understood just who Jesus was or what Jesus was like, because he fell into such a sense of despair that he could see no hope for himself. It seems he never contemplated that he could return in repentance to Jesus. He was lost in despair. And in some ways, for the the church, you could say, well, Judas is is the elephant not in the room. You know, this is surely a big embarrassment for the church to have to explain this Judas character. Um, Luke, you've already told us that Jesus had a night of prayer, and afterwards he appointed the 12 apostles, and one of them was Judas Iscariot. Jesus appointed him, Jesus trained him, and then look what happened. What an embarrassment. And of course, it is a, a catastrophic failure on Judas's part. But does it mean it's a failure on Jesus's part? Well, Peter can see that however wicked Judas's actions were, even that severe a wickedness was actually part of the plan of God. 
God used even that sinful deed to fulfill his good purposes. And that's the language Peter uses, isn't it? The scripture had to be fulfilled, which was spoken beforehand concerning Judas. And Peter quotes two Psalms to make his case. Psalm 69, Psalm 109. And they're both similar Psalms in many ways. Psalms of David, where David, he writes these really from the perspective of, a, of an innocent sufferer. So if you were to read those Psalms, you would, you would hear words like this. Those who hate me without a cause. Reproaches have broken my heart. Wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me. In return for my love, they accuse me. They reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. That's the kind of tone of the psalm. David is, is innocent, and yet he is persecuted and harmed. And of course, David was speaking about real experiences in his life. But as the Lord's anointed king, as he writes these words of Scripture, he's also foreshadowing the same pattern that would fall upon the anointed Savior, Jesus Christ, betrayed by one whom he had only ever loved. And in those Psalms, David prays, denouncing those traitors. And that's what Peter quotes. May his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it. Speaking of the, the, the ruin that will come to the wicked. Uh, elsewhere in that psalm, he'll say, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. And then the need for a replacement, let another take his office. Peter understands that what lies before them is the dawning of a new era. And there is a significance to there being 12 apostles. It's not an incidental number, it's specific. Jesus taught his 12 apostles that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the renewed kingdom when it comes. You find that in Matthew 19 and Luke 22. And you look ahead, you see in almost the last chapter of the Bible, you have this picture of the, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city coming down where God is going to dwell with man. And the description it's given is that the city has 12 foundations and on those 12 foundations are written the names of the 12 apostles. And so Peter is convinced that this is what God is saying to them. They need to prepare for the mission. They need to submit to God's word. And they need to replace this missing apostle. Now notice with me here, Peter doesn't stand up and say, you know, I have a feeling or I've heard a voice in the night. He doesn't even say that. He says the scriptures must be fulfilled because they say this. He submits to God's word. And so they appoint a 12th apostle. And Luke tells us this not just to show us that the number of apostles is important and somehow fits in with God's big plan for his people, but really to show us how reliable these guys are. So look at the qualifications in verses 21 
and 22. Here's Peter's proposal. One of the men who've accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So, you had to have been there. To be on the shortlist, you had to have been there from the time of John the Baptist right through to the ascension that has just happened. So, all in all, about a three-year spell. To be an apostle with a capital A, you couldn't have merely second-hand information about Jesus. You needed to have seen Him with your own eyes. You needed to have heard Him with your own ears. You needed to have touched Him with your own hands. And, of course, it's hard to see how anyone could be an apostle with a capital A today, right? Qualifications are quite specific. And Luke is as transparent as he can be, as we said earlier, isn't he? He names names, just like listing the 11 names in verse 13. He here tells us they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. This detail is not there to bore us. It's there to give us confidence. These are not faceless, nameless witnesses that you just need to blindly trust. Here we're told there were two guys who were equally qualified for the role. They put them forward. And it's almost certainly the case from the way Luke writes this Now, when he wrote the book of Acts, sometime probably in the late 60s AD, 35 years after Jesus had, uh, uh, 35 years after this event, he puts this together. There were people who would read this account who knew who Joseph Barsabbas Justice was. Why else mention him? He's got no part to play in the story. He merely made it on a short list. But there were people, when Luke wrote this, sent it out, who knew who this man was. And as Luke does in all of his writing, he is not afraid to give details. Go and check it out. You know where Joseph lives. Go and ask him. This is what happened. It's all verifiable. And so, as it comes to us all these generations later, we can be confident in the apostles' witness, the apostles' doctrine, as we're going to see it called in a few weeks' time in Acts chapter 2. What has been passed down to us has come from reliable witnesses who could testify firsthand that Jesus is the Christ. And you read through this book of Acts, these men were a pest to their opponents, a real pest, because they'd seen it with their own eyes. It was unshakable for them. They could throw them in prison. They could give them a beating, and they would not stop because they had seen it. They weren't going on someone else's testimony. They had seen, they'd heard, they'd touched. This is why their lives were changed. And the Holy Spirit spoke through them, not just to those who heard them, but to us too. Their testimony is recorded for us in these pages of our New Testament. It is the message of Jesus Christ, the rescuer, promised by God, 
who would rescue his people from their sins. The apostles testified to his truly human existence. You know, they saw him eat. They saw him sleep. They saw him tired. But also they testified to his truly sinless life. They show us the signs and wonders that confirm who Jesus is. They share his teaching, which points us again and again to our need of God's grace. And they tell us of his rejection by his people, about his death on the cross. They show us the death of the innocent in the place of the guilty, like you and me. And they're witnesses to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And repeatedly, the upshot of it all is that Jesus is the only Savior, the only way to be forgiven your sin, the only way to be right with God. You need to believe in Him. You need to know Him. Turn away from living for yourself and follow Him. This is what the apostles have passed down to us, and it's reliable. And Luke deliberately records it in a way that screams out, check it out. Test the dates, test the places, test the names. What I'm saying is reliable. And that's the starting point for all of us. God has sent his word out through his messengers to accomplish this, to save people from their sins. Even you, even you. Well, God's people were prepared for God's mission by unity in prayer, by submission to the Word of God, and last of all, by trusting in the sovereignty of God, by trusting in the sovereignty of God. Sometimes you do find those situations in life, don't you? There are um, two or even more uh, ways that you could go, and the options seem like there's not much between them. And for many Christians, that is your worst nightmare. Because, well, what if I make the wrong choice? And somehow I find myself outside the will of God, and I derail His whole plan for my life. Well, listen. These 120 disciples had two equally qualified men standing in front of them who could be appointed as an apostle. There's only one space. There's two guys qualified. There's no sense of paralysis here, no sense of fear that they might wander off and derail the whole plan. I mean, just think about it. God has already inscribed the name into the foundation of the new Jerusalem, and here they've got to pick the right one. I mean, if anything's going to get you nervous, it might be this, but that's not their experience here. They're not paralyzed because they trust in the sovereignty of God. They trust even in the providence of God, which might be the better word to use. And look at what they do. What do they do? Verse 24, again, they prayed. They prayed. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. What do they do? They acknowledge that God sees things far more clearly than they do. They have done the best they can, and they can't choose between them. But Lord, you can see. You can see. But then what do they do? They pray, and then they choose. I mean, that's what's undeniable here. Sure, they cast lots, which, I mean, pretty much they pulled a name out of a hat. But they chose 
There's no voice from heaven. I mean, you'll get, you'll get voices from heaven throughout the book of Acts, not here. No voice from heaven. Nobody steps forward and says, well, I just have a feeling. I just have a feeling that it's Matthias. They put two names in a hat and they pull one out. And they can do it because they're not, they're not leaving themselves to chance. They know that life is not about whether you have good luck or not. Because they're confident God is sovereign. God in his providence can work even in the pulling of a name out of a hat. Now, uh, they, have, they have an Old Testament uh, scripture in mind, I'm sure. Uh, Solomon writes in the Proverbs that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. He's just saying the same thing. Even these small decisions, they're, not, they're not, not just circumstantial. They're not down to good luck. God is sovereign. God's people have a big view of God's providence and they trust him. Now, here's the caveat. It is true we don't read of them using this process again in the Scriptures to make a decision. And that may well be because, well, what happens in the next chapter? The Holy Spirit comes. And we do find that He much more directly intervenes at times in their decision-making. But I do think it's worth saying they're not afraid to make a decision, even by casting lots, because they know the Lord is even in that. Now, don't hear me wrong. It is very rare in life that you are faced with, with a choice where one is not a more God-glorifying option than the other. God has given us brains. God has given us the Word. And God wants us to apply that in decision-making. And so, if you get two job offers, which I don't think I've ever had in my life, but if you get two job offers, you can weigh up what is going to be most honoring to the Lord. You get two offers of marriage, you can weigh up which one is going to be more honoring to the Lord. You get two churches you could go to, you can weigh up what's going to be most honoring to the Lord. And on and on that could go. And it's very rare you will find yourself in a situation these 120 disciples did, where here were two godly men, nothing to choose between them, and one of them had to fill that office. Why not just, why not just pull a name out of a hat? One is not any more or less dishonoring to the Lord, but they pray, Lord, be with us in this decision. Even when things aren't clear, we can pray and we can step forward knowing that God is not some fickle overseer who's ready to ruin our lives because we missed his will on some marginal decision. There's liberation in knowing God is sovereign. And this confidence is essential for their preparation for the mission. This is God's plan, ultimately. It's depending more upon Him than it is upon any of us. This is to be the posture of God's people, trusting that He's at work, even when we can't see it. As we are faithful to His call to be His witnesses, we trust that God is doing something. And so for us, in this chapter of history of Bankery Christian Fellowship Church, there will be things that shake our confidence, no doubt, as some ministries recommence in coming weeks, they might look different to how they looked before. They might be simpler. They might be smaller. They might be less outwardly impressive. But do we trust that the Lord is fulfilling His mission as we seek to do His will in this place? That friend that you have that you don't think would be remotely interested in hearing about your faith, 
Well, you know what? God in his providence has put you in that person's life. Why do you think that might be? Could it be that God knows more about the situation than you? Sharing the good news about Jesus, telling your story, is always an exercise in trusting in God's sovereignty. Because it's only God who can give faith for someone to believe. Anyway, we are way over time. God's people are prepared for God's mission here by their unity in prayer, by their submission to the Word of God, and by their trusting in God's sovereignty. May that mark us out in these days as we look to step forward in the mission of Jesus Christ. Well, let's take time to say the words of the grace together, if we can. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. Thank you for being with us today. And if you're able, please do stay for tea and coffee afterwards. If anyone wants to speak about um, anything that's been said, anyone would like prayer, I'll be down in this corner and be very happy to speak to you. God bless.